from the newsroom of the Washington Post. ¿Cómo estás? Te habla Elise Hernández del Washington Post. This is Cleve Wooten with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Kimbrielle Kelly. It's Monday, March 4th. Today, more asylum seekers are headed to the southern border, an arts legacy complicated by the opioid crisis, and phone calls from President Trump. Tens of thousands of migrants arrived at the southern border last month seeking asylum. Many of those people came with their children, which presented a challenge for Border Patrol. This is what's happening on a daily basis, 20, 30 times a day. Uh, Groups like this, in this case, a mixture of people from all Central and South America coming in, turning themselves in. So I'm Nick Miroff. I cover the Department of Homeland Security and Immigration Enforcement. Nick went to the border last month to find some of those people and see firsthand what was happening. Over the past five months, we've seen record-breaking numbers of families coming across the border. And typically, these families consist of a single adult, often a father, and one child. These are predominantly Guatemalans and Hondurans. And so the Central American families are showing up at the border and surrendering to U.S. Border Patrol agents, essentially turning themselves in to start the asylum process. But because they cannot be held in immigration detention for very long, in most cases, they are released with their children in a matter of days and then assigned a court date for when they're supposed to appear before an immigration judge that would determine kind of the next step. And, you know, the Department of Homeland Security increasingly says that they are not showing up for those court hearings and are just going underground. And as we've written about before, this has become kind of the administrative path into the United States that has really become the single biggest trend at the border. And how many people are we talking about? Because we're talking about a surge that's happening now. Yeah. So one of the misconceptions is that illegal border crossings remain at their lowest levels in many decades. And that's just simply not true. Over the past five months, the Customs and Border Protection has either arrested or taken into custody about 60,000 people per month. And February is going to be the highest month on record. It's going to be over 70,000 And the fear is that we're heading into the spring, March and April months that have typically seen an increase. Last year, there was a 39% increase in illegal border crossings from February to March. So if we saw a proportional increase again this year, we're talking about 100,000 people in a single month. This is the highest level of border crossings that we've had in a decade. And why are we seeing this surge like right now? What explains this? Well, it's several factors, and I think it's impossible not to look at last year's failed family separation experiment that the Trump administration initiated, primarily to deter families from coming in this very way. The numbers were increasing, and the administration resorted to what was kind of a nuclear option, which would be to to separate parents and children by essentially keeping the parents locked up in immigration detention and sending their children to shelters. And the backlash that that produced, as we know, forced the White House to pull back after about six weeks. 
But I think there's very much a perception, certainly among Border Patrol agents, that that was a kind of triggering event, that the controversy it generated, the publicity it generated, and the message that was ultimately broadcast, which was that families will not be separated, became essentially a, a golden smuggler's pitch, and that smuggling networks in Central America have used that to, to essentially advertise and recruit and to find new clients. And so across rural Guatemala now, the smuggling organizations recruit by telling parents or telling you know would-be migrants or customers that they will not be separated, they will not be in custody or will not be detained very long. And they've created a two-for-one pricing structure, which is that if you're an adult heading north, if you're traveling with your with a child, with your child, then the child basically goes free. And the reason that it's priced that way is because the, the smuggler or coyote no longer needs to sneak you across the border and into the United States, therefore risking or personally risking arrest. All they need to do is bring you up to the border where you can then walk across and surrender to U.S. agents. Now, you actually traveled down to El Paso recently. Can you talk about what you saw on the ground and why did you go there? Well, so we were out in a very remote part of the border in the New Mexico boot heel, a border crossing called Antelope Wells. That's where eight-year-old Jacqueline Call came across in December with her father and a large group before she died. It was her death and the death of another Guatemalan child a few weeks later that, you know, that really caused the administration to declare a humanitarian emergency and to really drive home this point about a crisis. In the new border compromise, there is more than $400 million in new funding for better detention conditions, for better medical screening, for all sorts of things specifically to deal with the humanitarian emergency that has been created by this situation. But we were down there to look for the arrival of a large group of, you know, 300 or 200 people to this really remote part of the desert. And what happened was, you know, we, we didn't see it those several nights that we were out there. But as soon as we went back to El Paso, where traffic had been shifting that week that we were there, we encountered a group of 64 parents and children along the river and really in the middle of the night that had just come across. And what were your observations? Well, it was really heartbreaking. This group had come across after midnight, kind of wading through the river right into downtown El Paso. They were between the river and, you know, the tall steel fencing, which is essentially, you know, the border wall. So they were on American soil, but they were south of the border wall, if you can picture that, this no man's land between where the fence rises and the river, the Rio Grande. So they have to be taken into custody and processed. And they had turned themselves into a, a U.S. Border Patrol agent. But he was, at that point, the only agent available along that stretch of the river. The processing center was over capacity. There were other agents that had taken families to the hospital with sick children. And so it was a real example of how strained resources have become as a result of this situation. And so this single agent was there with this group of 64, but couldn't leave them because he had to watch that stretch of river for drug traffickers because trafficking groups have been taking advantage of the diversion created by these large groups or deliberately creating a diversion with them in order to try to smuggle drugs at the same time that the agents are tied up with family groups. So in this case, these families were sitting and the temperature was falling into the low 40s, the wind was blowing, and they were shivering in the cold and the children were crying. And the agent had passed out these kind of plastic space blankets that 
the Border Patrol gives to people for warmth. And they were just hunkered down in, in the wind and the, and the children really, you know, were inconsolable. They were, sh- they were shivering and crying uncontrollably really for hours on end. It was truly a heartbreaking scene and really, you know, something that was quite haunting to see. But for us, you know, really, I think, helped illustrate, you know, what this looks like and what the, what the strain looks like. So there was no facility for them to go into, to sit down at, to be processed. Well, there is a facility, and it was actually just a few hundred yards away, but there were no vans or or buses to come and get this group. There were no agents available to come and drive to pick the group up and to take them back to the processing center. And it wasn't until, um, you know, the agents began really calling in and saying, we need to get this group out of the cold, that two customs officers who don't even, they're not part of the Border Patrol, showed up driving a Border Patrol van and began to pick up the group. And it took them three trips to bring the group back to the processing center. But they were out there for several hours in the, in the cold in the middle of the night. How long would you estimate? At least three hours. Is it clear that the administration, or Congress for that matter, have a really good sense of how to really help Border Patrol outside of the most immediate fixes? You know, I don't think so. I see the White House and... You know, many Republicans very focused on the border wall. And a wall, in this case, isn't really going to do anything. You know, we're talking about family groups that are coming across and turning themselves in. And, you know, this particular place where they arrived, again, was on the, you know, was on the other side of the wall. And so there's, there wouldn't be any way to keep a family like that out of the United States, you know, with the physical infrastructure that they're planning. At the same time, I see Democrats in Congress really focused on last year's family separation experiment. They've had several hearings on that policy, and they seem to be short on proposals for addressing the current situation and the current crisis. And really, I think there isn't a consensus about whether or not this is an urgent problem. But, uh, you know, when you're out there uh, on the border in the cold like that, seeing children in this state crying and shivering and, you know, the kind of desperation of the parents that have brought them here, it really does drive home kind of how we're really coming up short in our assessment of, of the challenge at the border and what could be done about it. Nick Miroff covers immigration for The Post. What they do, these protests, these die-ins, they have props, they surprise, it's sort of like a guerrilla protest. Arts reporter Peggy McGlone has been following a series of protests that have been popping up around the country in places that don't usually see a lot of protests. There was one in Washington, D.C., at the Arthur M. Sackler Gallery of Art. And they went in in small groups, and then at a determined time, they all started chanting. They chanted shame on Sackler, and they had empty pill bottles. They rolled the um, pills down the stairs. 
you know, this is what we're doing here. We want to call attention to the source of their wealth. There was a protest in Massachusetts at the Arthur M. Sackler Museum of Art at Harvard. And the latest one happened just last month. In early February at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City. The Guggenheim has an art education center named for Mortimer Sackler. So that was the latest site. These protests, they've all been organized by one woman, Nancy Golden, also known as Nan. I'm Nan Golden, and I'm an artist and activist. With one purpose. She says she was addicted to OxyContin and got clean. It rolled into a major addiction where it became my whole life. And it went from one pill to 18 pills a day. She wants people to realize that the Sackler wealth comes from OxyContin and that they are responsible, she believes, for the opioid crisis, or at least partially responsible for it. These are dark days, and I feel everyone has to do something to fight back. And this is my mission because it's something I understand in my own body. Let's start from the very beginning, because some people may not be familiar. Talk a little bit about their art legacy and who they are in the art world. Right. So Arthur M. Sackler is the named donor for the Smithsonian's Museum for Asian Art. He and his brothers, Raymond and Mortimer, founded a company, a pharmaceutical company. So we see that name all over the place. It's at the Metropolitan in New York. It's at the Guggenheim. It's at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. It's here in D.C. on the Asian art. It's at Princeton and Harvard and MIT. It's in London at a, you know, a slew of cultural institutions. So they are generous and well-known philanthropists but they're not necessarily known as the family behind the pharmaceutical company that's behind OxyContin. Good afternoon, everybody. So this afternoon, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Sackler Gallery, the Arthur M. Sackler Gallery of the Smithsonian. Arthur M. Sackler died in 1987, and his brothers bought his heirs out. And that company became Purdue Pharma, which then in 1996 introduced OxyContin, which is the mega drug that many people point to as the source of the opioid crisis in our country. The most powerful pain medicines for the most severe pain are called opioids. They, too, are only available by prescription. Opioids are very natural medicines. The company pled guilty in 2007 to false marketing and misleading doctors. There's no question that our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids. They were able to market a a drug that was more potent than morphine. They don't wear out. They go on working. They do not have serious medical side effects in a way that made it seem more welcoming and not as strong and not as scary. The interesting part about that case, they, you know, agreed to a zillion dollars in fines, but the family members weren't named. It was Purdue Pharma, but you didn't hear the name Sackler. Flash forward 11 years, and now there's many lawsuits across the country. A couple that are getting more attention are Massachusetts and New York. And in depositions and other investigative materials, we're seeing now a link with the family who were running the company in on those decisions. 
you know, this is not an easy thing. The family made a lot of money, had a lot of wealth. And this is very complicated in terms of their intersection with the art world. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's a couple of reasons why. In one sense, they're not looking to rehabilitate a reputation because their name wasn't necessarily associated with something bad. They're Donations like to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City go back, you know, almost 50 years, way before the launch of OxyContin. And then there are three brothers and multiple generations of those families, and they sort of have some infighting about not being lumped together. So Arthur Sackler, the oldest brother, who is the sole donor to the Smithsonian's museum here in Washington, D.C., gave that gift in 82 and died in 87. OxyContin didn't come to market until 1996. So his widow and other descendants are pushing back. We have nothing to do with OxyContin. It's not fair to lump us all together. So that's why the Smithsonian says, you know, we have a contract. We're not going to change the name. We're not going to give the money back. This is, you know, this is sort of ancient history. A spokesman for Purdue Pharma told me that he pointed out that the company says its opioid medications account for less than 2% of all prescriptions. And he said that they're deeply concerned about the toll that the crisis has had on the communities, on the country, on individuals, and that they are continuing to work toward solutions. What does the family say about all of this when you talk to them? Well, Jillian, the widow of Arthur, released a statement rather than talk to me, but she pushed back hard on her husband wouldn't have been behind what happened with Oxy, and it's not fair to label him, you know, with his brothers and their descendants. So when you talk to Nan Golden, what did she say is her goal in all of this? There's a couple of things she wants to accomplish. She wants these cultural institutions to you know, publicly say they're not going to take future donations and also to take their name down. Is she optimistic that this will happen? Well, I think they see the effort gaining traction. So I think, you know, the most recent one in New York had more people and got a lot of attention in the press and in social media. So that's a sign of progress. Do I think she thinks the names are going to come down? I I don't know, but she says that's what's appropriate. They want to have the name of the active cartel on their walls. It's not different. It's organized drug dealing. It strikes me that there's a backlash happening in our country right now where people are asking, can they, you know, go to a museum and and enjoy artwork made by people who they may perceive as being bad people? How are folks reconciling that? One of the things that the experts that I talked to for this story say, and they all agree, is that this is becoming a bigger problem, that, you know, these sort of toxic donors are not new, but that the times are changing and people are less willing to sort of turn a blind eye. They are more demanding of action. If people love the arts and they just want to walk into a museum and enjoy themselves and you don't necessarily know the name of the person who's funding the art, what are you supposed to do when you find out? I think that's a really good question and I think that that's at the heart of why this is becoming more of a thing. Perhaps 
decades ago, it wouldn't have mattered, but audiences today seem to be much more connected to these things. And pressure like these protests may lead to changes. The Smithsonian has already changed its policy for donor. They don't do in perpetuity anymore. That's not related to the Sackler, but it's sort of an acknowledgement that the world has changed and they have to address these things. So we'll see. Peggy McGlone is an arts reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. The president's unusual communication style with lawmakers. I'm Sungmin Kim, and I'm a White House reporter for The Post. Sungmin covers the relationship between the White House and Congress, and she noticed something about this president, which is that he is very easily reachable by lawmakers on the phone. And having covered other administrations, specifically other administrations' interactions with Congress, that just seemed pretty unusual to us. And so I just started going around in the hallways asking senators, you know, do you have this phone relationship with the president? And a surprising number really did. Sungmin says this is really different from how Presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush handled their calls with members of Congress. We have some descriptions about how the phone process under the Obama administration worked, where it was very formal, aides strategized before each call. Each call had a specific agenda and purpose. And what sources told us and what the senators told us, too, is that, you know, sometimes the president calls with no real agenda. Like, he just wants to say hi. He wants to ask, what do you think of this nominee? What do you think of this action? What's going on on the Hill? What's the gossip? Often these calls come without warning. You want a good one, I'll give you yeah, a good one. Yeah, I want a really good one. <laughs> okay. That was the case for Senator Jim Inhofe. You better record this. Yes, I'm definitely recording. Inhofe was with one of his grandchildren, chopping wood in his home state of Oklahoma when he got a call from the president on Air Force One. They talked business for a minute. And he, then he said, by the way, what are you doing? And I said, I'm with my... No, this was a lie. Because I, I love all my grandkids the same. I say, I'm with my favorite grandson. Yeah. You and say I'm, that about all the kids. Yeah, yeah sure. that I do. <laughs> and so I, and I said, we're, we're splitting wood. Yeah. And, uh, and I told him the story. We split wood all, all the time. And he said, well, let me talk to him. So he said, uh, well, this is, yeah, this is uh, your president. His eyes were like this. <laughs> These calls aren't just to chat, though. Lawmakers say it's important for them to communicate with Trump. Because no one can speak for the president. Vice President Pence can't even speak for him at times. And there are many examples even recently where Pence tells Congress something, tells even Republican senators something, and then the president contradicts him. And I think particularly Republican senators have learned that. So as they've built this comfort level with Trump in terms of calling him, they're also doing it because they know that if you at least talk to him, you hear straight from the horse's mouth what he actually thinks about what this policy initiative or this congressional drama or how he's going to vote, whether he's going to sign a bill or not. And I think that's just the reality that they've accepted. So there is this almost a necessity for a lot of these Republican senators to call him directly to figure out what's really going on inside his head. Sung Min Kim covers the White House and Congress for The Post. 
That's it for today's show. You can join in on the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Kimberly L. Kelly. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.